0: Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, "'Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom.'" Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your reward to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, and greatness, and glory, and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parsim. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Now it's fun to compare people across different parts of history, right? Uh, You sports fans know this who's the greatest baseball player? Babe Ruth, Willie Mays, Barry Bonds? People ask, how would LeBron James and Steph Curry stack up against Michael Jordan? Or in 2014, when the German Formula One driver Sebastian Vettel started driving for Ferrari, he was always compared to Michael Schumacher, the a seven-time world champion, a German driver who also drove for Ferrari. Historians like to do it, too. Which president is your favorite? Was Barack Obama better or worse than George W. Bush? Which Roosevelt do you prefer? Or you might ask, who's the greatest military leader of all time? Napoleon? MacArthur? Alexander the Great? Most of these debates you can't ever settle for certain. There's not objective criteria. Different people weigh different criteria differently, and they, you may have legitimate reasons for weighing these things differently. But here in Daniel chapter 5, we hear the story of Belshazzar's feast, and this story is crying out for comparison with the story of Nebuchadnezzar and his madness from Daniel chapter 4. There's just, there are so many points of comparison between these two men. But there's a difference. In this comparison, we do have objective criteria. We have God's word. We have God's word to compare these men by. And so let's sort of set the historical scene for this comparison. Now, the Neo-Babylonian Empire never had another king like Nebuchadnezzar. He had a long reign. He reigned for 43 years, and he completed dozens of construction projects, which caused his great pride, of course. But he renovated the temple, the palace. He had this processional street built out of costly, colorful stones, But after him, his son reigned for only two years, after being overthrown and assassinated in a coup. The next two kings after him were short-lived. And then we come to Nabonidus, the second greatest king, uh, who reigned for 17 years, and yet still spent more than half his reign away from the city, Uh, not popular for his religious opinions, and it took him some time to overthrow another city that he intended to conquer. And so he spent 10 years, at least, away from the city of Babylon, away from his capital city, and that's where Belshazzar comes in. Now, Belshazzar was Nabonidus's son, although Belshazzar was never the king outright. Uh, And in fact, that's why he offers to Daniel only being third in the kingdom instead of second in the kingdom, because he himself was second in the kingdom. But he reigned in the city in place of his father, the king, and he had all the prerogatives and power of the king. That's why nobody questioned his ability to elevate somebody so high. And so with the real king being hundreds of miles away, Um, As far as everyday life in Babylon was concerned, Belshazzar really was the king. And so the official records of Babylon don't name him as king. But this is not an official record of Babylon. This is an official record, of course, of God and his people. And for all practical intents and purposes, Belshazzar was king. And as Belshazzar's story that parallels Nebuchadnezzar's. And so these two, Daniel 4 and Daniel 5, are meant to be read together. And you must compare them to understand Daniel 5. And there are so many common elements to their stories, but they both turn on a message from God. Both men were confronted by God's word. And we're going to see, in each case, how God deals with them through his word. And we'll see how God is able to work both mercy and judgment through his word according to his holy will, which serves as a warning to people like you and me to listen to God's word and obey. But that warning is only one significance. There's another one. There's another significance for people like you and me, for it's a reminder that God through his word, is able to do his will, even in the enemies of his people. Now, exile is the common experience of all God's people on earth. For if you trust in Christ, you're a citizen of the heavenly kingdom, first and foremost, rather than any earthly kingdom. And so we all encounter opposition. For we all have a spiritual enemy, Satan. And we have earthly enemies, too, Now, in our time and place, opposition from the government is rare, but it's a common experience of the church both elsewhere now and at many times in church history. But even if you're not standing in opposition to the government, things happen that work against our thriving in faith. There's depression, addiction, broken relationships. Or simply spending a time persisting in sin. Or even good things in life can ensnare you. Your desire to be loved and known. Your desire to be secure. Things that the enemy will use to trip you up. Things that the enemy will use to try to dominate your life. Just like any earthly ruler can dominate you. And turn you away from God. But God here shows that he is well able to defend his own honor and glory and to protect his people. For in Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, we see that God is able to take on some of the most powerful kings that the world has ever known. And he does it simply through his word. And this is the same word. It comes from the same character, from the same God, whether he's bringing mercy or judgment we're going to look at, see what that looks like through three lenses. So first, we're going to look at the character of Belshazzar. And second, we'll draw this contrast between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And then we'll look at how God's word is at work in these two men, and in you and me. So first, we take a look at Belshazzar, for at the beginning of our passage, we see Belshazzar throwing a huge party for himself, for his lord's, for his wives, for his concubines. And if you know your history, you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. For at this time, at this very moment, the Medes and the Persians are on the doorstep of Babylon. They've already conquered multiple cities in in the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire has been on the ropes for quite a while now. Now, we know very little about the fall of Babylon itself. There are historical records that actually tell conflicting stories whether Babylon simply gave itself up to Cyrus or whether there was a fight or or not. But we know this, that it was a long time in coming. And Belshazzar would have known it too. Belshazzar knew that his that the battle was at his front doorstep. And so why is he throwing a feast? So it's likely uh, that this feast was intended to curry favor and to boost morale among the lords who served under Belshazzar and under Nabonidus. And so it's like a team meal before the last football game of the season. And so if you look at it in this way, it makes sense. But this feast also has some features that let us see a few things about Belshazzar that are going to seal his fate. For we see Belshazzar's arrogance and his blasphemy and his idolatry. So first Belshazzar is an arrogant man. This feast is an opportunity to proclaim his own great glory and the glory of his kingdom. But Nabonidus and Belshazzar were not great kings. They weren't the worst, they weren't the weakest but they don't exactly go down in the annals of history. They're not in the Hall of Fame. And even as the empire is crumbling, despite knowing this, despite knowing the history of his own kingdom, Belshazzar is throwing a party to show off. Now the central element of many great feasts back then actually was the drinking of wine. And so here Belshazzar even appears to be showing off his skills as a championship caliber drinker. But more than that, he has the golden vessels from Jerusalem brought in to drink from. It's as though he's proclaiming himself stronger and harder and badder than Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar sees these golden and silver vessels, but he just put them away in his storage unit. It's as though Belshazzar is saying, Oh, that the great Nebuchadnezzar, he was too scared. He was chicken. He chickened out. But I'm so great, I'll drink from them myself. It's silly for Belshazzar to declare himself greater than Nebuchadnezzar. We know the accomplishments of these two men, but that's his purpose. So we see that Belshazzar is arrogant indeed. And looked at from God's perspective, the center of the feast isn't actually the drinking of wine, but it's Belshazzar's use of golden vessels, of the golden vessels set apart uh, for God's purposes. And so it's Belshazzar's blasphemy that is really at the center of this feast. And these vessels were holy. They were set apart by God for his own purposes. Now, before Jesus' blood covered over the division between holy things and common things, it was necessary for God to maintain a certain distance between himself and ordinary people and things. For his holiness meant it was a serious offense to him to come into contact with things that were common. And so these vessels, these implements used in worship must must be kept holy too. And so the point here isn't even that Belshazzar used these golden vessels for an evil purpose. He could have used them for a drink of water. He could have used them as a vase for nice flowers. He could have kept his toothbrush in them. And it would be just as blasphemous. For Belshazzar was saying, this God is not unique. He is not separate. He is not holy. And so we see Belshazzar's blasphemy. But Belshazzar doesn't use the vessels for a neutral but common purpose. He uses them for idolatry. For as we see in verse 4, Belshazzar and his guests use the vessels to do what? They drink a toast to false gods. They praise gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They praise gods who don't live, but are in fact dead. And so not only is Belshazzar drinking himself into a stupor. He's using the occasion to spit in God's face. So it's no wonder that God wants to have a word with him. And the thing is, though, there's a little bit of Belshazzar in all of us, isn't there? For Belshazzar, he profaned God's holy vessels. But we live in a time after we've seen the fulfillment of these vessels that Christ gave his life for us. And so God's holiness, his his glory is not represented by goblets made of gold or silver. It's not represented by a cloud in a temple made of wood and stone. For God's dwelling place is in his people now. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Or in Ephesians 2, where he says that the church is a temple being built together by the Holy Spirit with Christ as the cornerstone. So think about it. How do you approach your brothers and sisters in the church? How do you show your love and care for your fellow living stones in God's temple? How do you show your respect for the presence and holiness of God? In your brothers and sisters. And for that matter, we see God's glory in all humanity. For every human being still bears God's image. Now, it's true that for those of us who are in Christ, God is perfecting us into the image of Christ. But his image remains in all human beings, which is affirmed in Genesis 9 and in James 3. James is very pointed. He says, With our tongue, we bless our God and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? What do you say to or about your neighbor who's outside the church? What do you do or say to people we made in the image of God. For James is saying this, you can't bless your neighbor with the word of life if you also insult, belittle, or mock, or think evil of your neighbor. And so each in our own way, we find a way to imitate Belshazzar's example. We profane the glory of God. On top, and this, this fact is on top of the concern we talked about at the beginning of this message, that that we look to worldly things rather than God to take care of us. But there is an answer. So we've taken a look at Belshazzar's character. Now, let's take a moment and compare him to Nebuchadnezzar, for there are so many similarities between these two men's stories. You start in in both cases, with, with a king who pridefully glorifies himself. That God responds by giving each one a message that they can't understand on their own. So out of fear, they both turn to their most trusted counselors, but none of these counselors are able to understand the message either. And so finally, Daniel is consulted because the spirit of the holy God is found in him. And Daniel gives the interpretation and is rewarded. But there are quite a few differences between these two stories too, aren't there? And these work together to highlight the key difference between the two kings. Nebuchadnezzar is able to humble himself and to be taught by God. But Belshazzar is not. And so first we note the fact that Daniel at this time in Daniel 5, he's been forgotten by the Babylonians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had his second dream some years after the first one, but during that time, he didn't forget that Daniel alone could interpret the first dream. He, and he didn't forget that he could do so because the true God gave Daniel the interpretation. But here we see that that nobody remembers. The only person who remembers Daniel is apparently the queen mother who presumably knew Daniel uh, from earlier in his life. And so, when, when Belshazzar summons the wise men of Babylon and they can't help, he thinks that he's out of options. He's forgotten the man who can help him. The one person in the whole kingdom who would be able to understand the message. Second, when Belshazzar meets Daniel, he treats him pretty roughly. He elaborates the circumstances of Daniel's presence in Babylon. He reminds Daniel that he's in exile. He rubs salt into the wound of the conquest of Jerusalem, and he wants to put Daniel in his place. And do you note that that Belshazzar isn't able to bring himself to say, the spirit of God is in you, and you can give interpretations and solve problems. He's only able to say, well, I've heard these things. So Belshazzar appears to be cynical. He's a skeptic. And perhaps even in his promise of reward, he's hiding a threat. You better prove these things right. You better prove these reports right, because I certainly don't know. You better prove them right, or it's the noose. And it betrays a lack of perspective, a lack of gratefulness on Belshazzar's part, for Daniel owed his reign to, or sorry, Nebuchadnezzar owed his reign to Belshazzar's interpretations of these dreams. Belshazzar never would have inherited such a magnificent kingdom without Daniel. And so his failure to have met Daniel before and his failure to recognize Daniel for who he is shows a lack of gratitude and certainly shows an appalling lack of manners. And when he finally gets the opportunity to meet this Daniel, he says, but what have you done for me lately? A third difference. Daniel, in return, doesn't really show deference to Belshazzar. For Daniel has the spiritual sight to recognize that Belshazzar is no Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Daniel showed concern for Nebuchadnezzar when when Nebuchadnezzar told him his second dream. Daniel expressed a desire that Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that this message would be intended for his enemies instead. For Daniel had come to love the king. Daniel saw that Nebuchadnezzar could be molded by God. It was slow. It took time. He took a step backward for every two steps forward. But the progress was there. but there's no such progress in Belshazzar. And so Daniel considers the gifts and the rewards that Belshazzar offers to be worthless because he sees that they are being offered by a man who's unworthy. And Daniel also sees that these honors will not live long. And so as Daniel responds to Belshazzar, he gives Belshazzar a short history lecture. He recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar's glory, his pride, his fall, and his eventual repentance and restoration. That's the key difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. For Nebuchadnezzar humbled his heart before God, and Belshazzar did not and would not. And Belshazzar has no excuse. He knows the story. He knows what happened with his predecessor. And yet he persists in going up against God. He's not responded faithfully to God's words so far. He's not going to respond faithfully now. And this is the thing that ties these two men and their fates together. We've seen how Belshazzar stacks up against Nebuchadnezzar, and we see the crucial difference. It's the way that God reveals himself to them in his word. For the message to Nebuchadnezzar offers the hope of repentance. In chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that when he humbles himself, God will confirm his kingdom. Daniel even implores his king to change his ways and avert the coming disaster in the first place. But the message to Belshazzar contains no such such warning, no such offer of repentance. It's simply... Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. For God has judged Belshazzar unworthy. His time is up. And his kingdom will be given to another. And so you look at this and you ask, why why did Belshazzar not get the opportunity to repent? But the fact is that Belshazzar had tons of opportunity to repent. He's had his whole life to turn to God. Nebuchadnezzar got three chances to turn to God, once in chapter two, once in chapter three, once in chapter four. But these were the first times that Nebuchadnezzar could have heard of the true God in his ways. Daniel reminds Belshazzar that you know the story. You know about Nebuchadnezzar's experiences. You know how he humbled himself and and had his kingdom confirmed for him. Belshazzar knows that God will receive the one who turns to him. Belshazzar has heard from God in his word before this feast. He's heard of the great things God has done. And So at this crucial moment, the message from God that led to mercy for Nebuchadnezzar leads to condemnation for Belshazzar. And it's the same for you. Like Belshazzar, you have heard all you need to know to turn from your wicked ways and to turn to God. For it is written, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. The message of the gospel is all you need. Jesus died so you can be one of God's children and so you can walk in new life. He will fulfill his promise toward you. You can't do anything on your own to secure his promises. Good theology won't do it. Generous giving won't do it. Having a fine car won't do it. Signaling your virtue on social media won't do it. No matter how proud of any of these things may be, you may be, none of them will save you. Your faith doesn't even save you. It's God who saves you. He uses your faith as his instrument to do it, for faith is the only attitude of the heart that comes to God saying, I have nothing of my own. And time is running out for you too. That's the meaning of Jesus' parable of the wicked servant. This servant who who beats his fellow servants, who, who gorges himself on what his master has stored up, and then is surprised when the master returns early. And the master finds the servant abusing his position. Jesus is coming soon. But he has been gracious to you. And he has put in front of you everything you need to know to trust in him. So don't run from his word like Belshazzar did. Cling to his word in faith. And through this very word, he will preserve you. God showed to Daniel that he could conquer dangerous men like Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he could even turn a dangerous man into his ally. And even here, even as this empire that Daniel has faithfully served is going to fall this very night, even as he's made the third highest in the kingdom, a dangerous position to be in if your kingdom is about to be conquered. God sees to it that Daniel will live to fight another day. So far, Daniel has survived five kings who put God in their crosshairs. And now we'll see that he's going to survive one of the greatest empires that the world has ever known way back in chapter 1, we saw that Daniel began his service with dedication to God. And already, at the very beginning of the story, it previews the fact that Daniel serves all the way through more kings, more empires. For Daniel began his service with dedication to God above all. God worked through this dedication to carry him through many dangerous moments. And in Jesus, he's gone even farther. For Jesus conquered death itself, the most terrible tyrant that you'll ever meet. And he did it for you. And the things that you face may be real and may be able to hurt you, but they can't do you in completely. And the damage will not last. will be redeemed when Jesus returns and we live with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do indeed preserve us and that you teach us through your word to walk in newness of life. And so, Father, I pray for all of us that, that we would indeed walk this way, and that we would serve you alone as our kingdom. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.